Chapter forty two of Herb of Grace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Herb of Grace by Rosa Nuchet Carey. Chapter forty two. The Whirligig of Time. Give what you have to some. It may be better than you dare to think. Longfellow The possible stands by us ever fresh, Fairer than aught which any life hath owned, And makes divine amends. Jean Ingelow Two years had passed away Since Malcolm had uttered his passionate protest In the Priory Garden that May morning. When the white petals of the Gelder roses in Elizabeth's hand lay like snow on the gravel path, and all this time he had sternly adhered to his resolution. In those two years he had only paid four visits to the woodhouse, and on two of these occasions Elizabeth had been absent. Each time he had come on Dinah's invitation to give her the help and counsel she needed and more than once he had met her at twenty-seven Queensgate, for Cedric had had his way, and had effected an introduction between his sisters and Mrs. Herrick, and as they had mutually taken to each other, a pleasant intimacy had been the result, and Anna had paid two or three visits to the woodhouse. From the first moment of their meeting, Anna had fallen in love with Dinah. "'You must not think that I do not care for Miss Elizabeth, Templeton,' she had observed rather shyly to Malcolm after her first visit to Staplegrove. "'For I admire and like her more than I can say, and I am never tired of talking to her. But I do love my dear Miss Dinah.' And indeed Dinah accepted the girl's innocent worship with great kindness. She is a dear child, and Elizabeth and I are very fond of her, she wrote once to Malcolm. The thought that someone else is fond of her too makes me very happy. For at this time it was evident to all Cedric's friends that a mutual attachment was growing up between him and Anna. The years had not been unfruitful to Malcolm and his name as a powerful and successful author was firmly established. He no longer held his appointment, and had given up his dingy chambers in Lincoln's Inn. His own work fully occupied him, and thanks to his literary receipts and his mother's generosity, he realised a good income. To his own regret, and to his friends also, he was no longer a member of the Keston Menage. He had outgrown his homely quarters, and now occupied one of the new flats in Cheney Walk, and lived in quite a palatial fashion, though many a pipe was still smoked in Amias's studio. Malcolm had emerged from his shell, and mixed freely in society. His was a name to conjure with, and all the people best worth knowing gathered round him and delighted to do him homage. Elizabeth used to read his name sometimes in the columns of the Times and the Morning Post. 
"'He seems to go everywhere and to know everyone,' she observed once to Dinah. "'I am afraid he will be terribly spoiled.' But she only said it to tease Dinah. She knew that Malcolm Herrick had no overweening estimate of himself, that in spite of his success and his many friends, and all the smiles and adulation lavished on him, at heart he was a lonely man. Perhaps in her way Elizabeth was lonely too. In spite of her devotion to David's father, there were times when the narrowness of her life oppressed her, when her broad sympathies and strong vitality seemed to cry out for a larger life, for a wider outlook, when she trod the woodland paths with a sense of weariness. The same path day after day. How tired one gets of it all, she said to herself, one May afternoon, as she came in sight of the porch, where Mr. Carlyon was reading tranquilly, and enjoying the sweet spring air. The curate in charge looked slightly older, and had taken to spectacles, but otherwise there was little change in him. On the whole, his existence was a very peaceful one. He loved Rotherwood, and the simple, kindly folk amongst whom he lived. His books and Elizabeth's society were his chief pleasures. If the day passed without seeing her, Theo noticed that he grew restless and preoccupied, and finally went across to the woodhouse, on some excuse or other, to assure himself that nothing was amiss. "'Father thinks that there is no one like Elizabeth,' Theo would observe. "'Nothing that she says or does is wrong. If he had his way, they would never be apart. And Theo was right. In spite of his short sight, Mr. Carlyon soon detected the signs of mental weariness on Elizabeth's pale face. For as she seated herself on the wooden bench beside him, he patted her hand in his tender, homely way. "'What is it, my dear?' he asked gently. "'You look tired, Elizabeth.' "'Do I?' she returned absently. "'I feel as though I could walk ten miles with pleasure. "'That is the worst. "'I am so strong that nothing tires me. "'Sometimes, I fancy, it would be a pleasant experience "'to be honestly fatigued in some good cause. "'How one would sleep after it! "'I thought you always slept well, dear.' "'Oh, so I do.' Often I fall asleep as soon as my head is on the pillow, but I wake early. The first twitter of the birds rouses me, and then life looks so long. Elizabeth spoke in a dejected tone. "'Come and walk,' was Mr. Carlyon's only answer to this. "'I have been writing my sermon all the morning, and I feel a bit stiff and headachy. Let us go down the valley. And as Elizabeth made no objection to this, he got his hat and stick, and they sallied forth together. Outside the gate they came upon the vicar, and the three walked on together, as Mr. Charrington intended calling at the crow's nest. 
Elizabeth had been very silent all the way, and had left the conversation to the two gentlemen. When Mr. Charrington had quitted them, they turned into the long woodland path that skirted the valley. It was a beautiful spot, and a favourite resort of Elizabeth's. She loved to breathe the spicy incense of the pines, and to watch the shadows move across the valley. As they seated themselves under the clump of firs, they could look down into the dark woods far below. All round them were heather, bracken, whortleberries, and brambles, and later on the hillside would be a glory of purple. "'Well, Elizabeth, what is it?' asked Mr. Carlion, as she sat beside him in a brown study, and her brow puckered and lined with thought. I am sure I have been patient enough. Then she started and laughed a little nervously. How stupid I am this afternoon, and I have so much to tell you. I am so ashamed of myself, for I ought to be in such good spirits. The young people have come to an understanding at last. Cedric and Anna have written to Dinah. I left her crying for joy over their letters. I do not wonder at that. Miss Sheldon is a sweet girl. Cedric thinks she is perfect. I wish you could have seen his letter. He is rapturously happy. And Anna writes so sweetly. She says it seems like a dream, that she can hardly believe in her happiness, that she does not deserve it, and that Cedric is everything that she could desire. Ah! They are young. Life does not seem long to them, does it, Elizabeth? She smiled and shook her head. Cedric is going to bring her down on Wednesday, and he wants Mr. Herrick to come too. Dinah means to ask him, I believe. I tell her that he is far too busy and important a personage to trouble with our small family concerns. But Dinah was quite indignant when I said that. She has greater faith in his friendship, you see. But to this Elizabeth made no answer. She went on talking, with assumed eagerness, of the young couple. Cedric intends to be married soon, she said. Mr. Strickland is going to let them have the priory, and has taken a cottage for his own use. How charmed Anna will be when she sees it! The garden is a dream of beauty, and the house is delightful. For each summer she and Dinah had spent weeks at the Priory, and had succeeded in transforming the place. Anna would have a lovely home, and the simple country life would be far more to her taste than ever town had been. Even Mrs. Herrick who would feel her loss keenly, owned this. "'And Mr. Herrick is to be asked on this grand occasion? I am glad of that, Elizabeth.' And here Mr. Carlion pushed up his spectacles, and peered at her in his mild, short-sighted way. "'Do you know, my child, there is something I have been wanting to say to you for a long time, and I may as well say it now.' Elizabeth looked at him rather apprehensively. There was something significant in his manner. 
something what do you mean she faltered you have been a dear good daughter to me he went on clearing his throat from a slight huskiness and if you were my own flesh and blood you could not be more to me we have so much in common have we not my dear and then we both loved david yes yes she murmured and the ready tears sprang to her eyes we mourned for our dear boy together he went on slowly and groped our way hand in hand through the darkness how unhappy we were three years ago even now it is painful to look back on those days but thank god time and his grace have helped us and we no longer suffer i am not so sure of that returned elizabeth in a low voice but he seemed not to hear her you have been very faithful elizabeth if you had been david's widow you could not have mourned for him more deeply but as david's father i would bid you mourn no more she stared at him with parted lips but the words would not come why should you spoil your life elizabeth you are only thirty-five and please god there are many many years before you why is your heart to be empty and your arms unfilled because our precious boy is in paradise do you know my dear we often spoke of this he and i thank god there were no secrets between us and he told me more than once that the thought of your future was always on his mind elizabeth bowed her head on her hands she was weeping now though the tears came very quietly if he had only talked to me she murmured he tried to do so more than once returned mr carlyon but each time you stopped him would you like me to tell you what he said as well as i can remember his words she nodded but her face was still hidden it was at ventnor and very near the end and he was talking about you living or dying you were his one thought i know she will grieve he said to me but father you must not let her grieve too long i think it would trouble me even in paradise if such a thing could be if i thought i had spoiled her life elizabeth is made for happiness she must not waste her sweetness and then shall i go on but all the same he did not wait for consent it was then that david told me something that i had guessed before that someone else loved you and loved you dearly i am right am i not elizabeth no answer but he could see how her hands clutched each other as though in sudden agitation i was beforehand and he had no chance david went on but he is my superior in everything 
he was always so humble in his own estimation, dear fellow. Father, Malcolm Herrick worships the ground she walks on. One day he must have his reward. Oh, hush, hush, for pity's sake! And Elizabeth stretched out her hand to stop him. But he detained it gently. Elizabeth, three years are long enough for mourning, and Mr. Herrick has been very patient. Why should another life be spoiled? Why should you doom him, as well as yourself, to loneliness? I have not forgotten his look that evening, when you were singing to us. It was the look of a man who is starving for a little happiness, for the comfort and sweet sustenance that only a wife can give him. There, I will say no more. I have discharged my conscience and repeated my boy's words. I trust they have not been spoken in vain. His hand rested lightly on her head for a moment, as though in blessing, but no word escaped his lips. Then he rose, and after a moment Elizabeth joined him, and they walked back silently together. "'You are not vexed with me, my dear?' he asked anxiously, when they parted at the gate of Rowan Cottage. Then Elizabeth raised her sad eyes to his. "'Why should I be vexed? You are always so kind, so kind.' but you have said things that have troubled me." And she left him, and walked on rapidly until she found herself in the familiar woodland path. And then she unconsciously slackened her pace. She felt strangely shaken and agitated. The words her old friend had spoken had thrilled her as though by an electric shock. It was a message from the dead. Half involuntarily she sank down on the bank in the very spot where Malcolm had picked the honeysuckle. She knew what it was to be tired now. For the moment she felt weak and powerless as a little child. Over and over again she repeated dumbly Mr. Carlyon's words. How could she doubt that David had spoken them when he had tried with loving unselfishness to say them to her? Would she ever forget the tender solemnity of his manner? Elizabeth, life is long, as you say, and your great loving heart must not remain unsatisfied. Do not mourn for me too long. Do not refuse comfort that may be offered to you, if you can be happy, dear. But she had stopped him, and he could say no more. Truly, as his father had said, living or dying, she had been his one thought. "'Oh, how good you were to me, David!' she whispered. She rose and paced restlessly to and fro, while a bright-eyed robin watched her from a hazel twig. For other words, besides David's, were haunting her, and had been haunting her for two years though she had vainly tried to forget them. Sometimes she would wake from sleep with her heart beating, 
and those sad, reproachful words sounding in her ears. I can never be your friend, Elizabeth. And again, if either of you want me, I will come, if needs be, from the ends of the earth. Would she ever forget the look on his face as he said this? She had told him then that she should miss him. In these two years she had only seen him twice, and each time some strange embarrassment on her part had seemed to estrange them still more. He was Diana's friend, not hers. From her he would have all or nothing. And yet as time went on, and that vast loneliness of life pressed on her more and more, and her woman's spirit seemed to wander through waste places, seeking rest and finding none, that silent, patient love that seemed to enfold her from a distance began to appeal to her more strongly. Why should another life be spoiled? Mr. Carlyon had said. Ah, why indeed, she murmured. Then her mood changed, her face grew hot, and there was a pained look in her eyes. I have tried him too much, she thought. There are limits even to his patience. Last time I noticed a change. He is growing weary. Perhaps he has seen someone else. And here she choked down something like a sob, and hurried on. Dinah wondered what was amiss with her that evening. She seemed so listless and silent, and took so little interest in the absorbing topic of Cedric's engagement. The young couple were to arrive the following afternoon, and Dinah had arranged to drive to Earlsfield to meet them. As they sat down to luncheon, she said to Elizabeth, "'I am so glad that Mr. Herrick has promised to come to-morrow. I have just had a telegram from him.' And she handed it to her sister. Elizabeth was rather a long time reading it. "'Shall be with you by dinner-time.' shall take fly, stay two nights. "'Is it not good of him to come when he is so dreadfully busy?' continued Dinah in her placid, satisfied voice. "'Cedric will be delighted to have him. "'Do you think we ought to ask Theo and Mr. Carlyon to dinner, "'or would Mr. Herrick prefer just a family party?' "'Oh!' "'I think a family party would suit him best,' returned Elizabeth gravely. "'Theo rather bores him with her parish talk.' And Dinah said no more. End of chapter 42